Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Money with Katie podcast. And honestly, I think today's episode might be my favorite yet. Dare I say it? I don't know. It was an amazing conversation. So I want to tell you a little bit about today's guest. Ben Miller is the founder of a company called Chronify. And I'm going to let him tell you in the interview what Chronify is, what problem they're trying to solve. But as a little bit of background behind how I even met Ben, we had a mutual friend in Fort Collins. They did jujitsu together. And I think Ben was telling this mutual friend of ours about his company and about his interest in personal finance. And this friend was like, hey, actually, I know this girl that you should probably meet and here's her blog. And anyway, long story short, we met for coffee, really hit it off. And I knew after sitting down with this guy for an hour over coffee one morning before work that he needed to be on this show. And I think once you hear him speak, you're gonna completely understand why he's very well-spoken. He has a very unique perspective and he's honed it very well. He articulates it very well. But beyond that, I honestly think he sounds like Tim Ferriss in interview (laughs) and he's bald. So double Tim Ferriss points vocally and aesthetically, he is pulling it off. Anyway, I think you guys are going to love the conversation. He is currently working on Chronify, but prior to founding his own company and doing this, he was a, let me make sure I get this right, a foreign exchange options trader, right? Say that five times fast, at Goldman Sachs. And he left Goldman Sachs because he was like, you know what? I don't know. This ain't it. This ain't it. So the conversation's wonderful. I think we have a lot of similar perspectives on happiness and money and what it all means. So I'm just going to let you get into it. But before we do that, a message from the sponsor of today's episode. Today's episode was brought to you by Capitalize. Let me tell you why I love Capitalize. Even as a personal finance blogger, I was searching for the word. It's like expert, no. Guru, no. Blogger, somebody that loves personal finance. I had absolutely no interest in rolling over my old 401ks. One of these 401ks was in an unnamed brokerage firm. I'm not going to put them on blast. But the 401k did not have much in it. It had maybe, mm, I don't know, $5,000, $6,000 in it. And I had had this 401k for, I don't know, 8 to 10 months give or take. And I noticed when I went in to check on that 401k after leaving the company that I had paid over $30 in fees on a $5,000 balance that had been in the account for under a year. That's more than a 0.6% expense ratio or fee structure, depending on how you want to think about it and where those fees came from. And I knew that I needed to get that 401k out of that brokerage firm's possession because I was being charged way more than I wanted to pay to keep my index funds in that old 401k. So enter Capitalize. Capitalize is a free service. Yes, it's completely free. I know. 
that will roll over your 401k for you. All you have to do is tell Capitalize where the 401k is, approximately how much is in it, and whether or not it's predominantly traditional or Roth contributions, they will walk you through the rest. Thank you, Capitalize, for sponsoring this episode of the Money with Katie podcast. And if you are sitting on an old 401k, just go take a peek at the fees that you're paying. And if it doesn't sit well with you, then use Capitalize. I will put a referral link in the show notes. That way you can check them out if you're interested. I will also link my full product review, just in case you want to know a little bit more about my experience and what things were like for me when I was rolling over my old 401k. Okay, back to the show. Okay, Ben, thank you for joining me today. I want to start by asking you, what is wrong with most of the personal advi- finance advice that you read? Yeah, it's a, it's a big question. I think um, there are lots of things wrong with it. One, um, I mean, consider the backdrop, right? Like most people receive no personal finance education. It's just completely opaque. And I mean, even people who have PhDs and other things just don't have a prayer of figuring out this complex mess that is personal finance. And so that's the biggest thing. And that I think leads to the rest of the problems, (laughs) which is like, just people find it too hard to understand something that's nuanced. Mm -hmm. And so they approach it with way too simplistic a viewpoint. And then they wind up either overshooting or undershooting the mark. Hmm. And okay, when you say overshooting or undershooting the mark, can you say more about that? Sure. I think, uh, I think basically people, there's a ditch on both sides of the road, right? Mm. People, uh, as soon as they become financially self-aware, financially woke, (laughs) they, uh, they kind of figure out that they don't want to be that, you know, old person in a sweater with holes in it, just shivering because they didn't save enough money. Like that's not a happy place to be. Yeah. But I think people, you know, once they get past that first stage, there's a very real problem where people don't save too little, but they save too much. And that's one of the reasons, honestly, why I like listening to your podcast mm-hmm. so much is because you treat that uh, adequately and like emphatically in the sense that, you know, you acknowledge with a lot of your recent content that like there's such a thing as spending on the right things. And mm-hmm. that's a message that I think a lot of people miss. And I think ultimately it winds up hurting the people who would be most benefited by personal finance advice because people who aren't very well off look at personal finance and go, oh, that sounds great, but I could never do that. Mm-hmm. That's, I don't have that kind of slack in my life, and so yeah. I, can't, uh, I can't cut things, so I'm not even going to start. Um, so I think, I think it's helpful to uh, realize that there is a middle road, mm-hmm. and that could hopefully you know, create a bigger tent that people could come under and, and learn about personal finance. Interesting. I, so two things stuck out to me there. One is it feels like there's this undercurrent of like fear-based motivation. Like you mentioned the, I don't want to be the old person shivering in the sweater. Cause I, I completely relate to that. I remember the moment when I realized, oh, wait a second. I'm the one that's going to have to worry about that later. Like no one's going to come in and save me. And right. I think that, you know, whether you're a man or a woman, I think there's always that idea that like, oh, well, my spouse will bail me out or my parents will, will bail me out or somebody or the system will bail me out. Social security, like I'll have something or somebody to fall back on. And while that may be true, and while most people probably will have support from somewhere in their life, hopefully if they need it, that was never enough reassurance for me because I always felt very... 
I felt the need to be in control of the outcome. And so that was like a huge impetus for me at first was like, oh shit, I've been working for six months. I'm making 50 grand. And every month at the end of the month, I can pay the bills and pay rent, but like, there's not, there's, there's no process here. There's no plan. I don't have an investment account. I have no idea what I'm doing. And, and I think fear is a powerful motivator in the beginning, but then to your point about the ditch being on both sides of the road, if that dial gets turned up too high, mm-hmm. it, it starts to fuel that weird scarcity approach mm-hmm. to money, which I think that's when you get into the territory of like, well, I'm losing the forest or the trees. Like yeah. I started doing this so I could like ensure my future happiness and in doing so I'm completely obliterating my current happiness. Right. And not only obliterating your current happiness, but also training yourself to obliterate your future happiness mm. too. It's like what is today, but a dress rehearsal for tomorrow. And so that's one of the things that was, you know, if, if first learning that, Hey, I should cut out the stuff that doesn't actually lead to fulfillment and happiness that isn't aligned with my long-term goals that was number one, but now as I've started to wrestle with this stuff more and more, it's I'm appreciating the fact that there are certain things that I really owe it to myself, not only my present self today, but also to my future self to be willing to splurge on because otherwise I'm just lying to myself about what happiness costs for mm. me, right? And that's a bad situation because if I'm you know saving money on something that I actually legitimately love, that's that you know builds up my life, then I'm convincing myself that my cost of living is lower than it is. Mm. And so then I'm essentially planning on retiring with too little because I'm gearing my retirement savings toward uh, a life that I have been living, but not the one that I want to be living when I retire. That's so powerful. I think that's another reason why this year, as I feel like I've gotten better at finding that balance and, and not being so all or nothing about it. Like either I'm the most frugal person in the world. And if I'm not, then I'm doing a terrible job and it's not enough. It's like there, there is no in between or there used to not be. But as I've gotten better at that this year, I remember one time driving back from the Denver airport, all of my shitty stories involved the Denver airport, <laughs> honestly, in some way, shape or form. But it was, it was late. I had flown in, the flight had gotten delayed. I was coming from the East coast. So I probably landed at like 11 o'clock and then land. And I'm like, well, fuck me. Now I have to drive to Fort Collins and it's going to take me two hours. Trudge through the airport. And I remember getting in the car and being so tired and just wanting to be home and thinking like, oh, and reflecting on how much I had to do. Because I think it was a Sunday night and I was like stressed about work for the next day. And thinking someday when I am very wealthy I'm going to pay a car service, a big black Suburban, to come pick my happy ass up from the airport and drive me home so I can nap in the back seat or get work done or otherwise just decompress and not... Yeah, it was a stupid, you know, that's going to be a $300 luxury when the time comes, but... But I kind of stopped myself and I was like, well, wait a second. When is that day? Because Mm -hmm. you're making more now than you ever have. Mm -hmm. So if you're not willing to do it now when the money is still coming in, what makes you think you're going to be willing to do it when you're drawing down and you've thrown it in reverse and now it's like, oh, well, I have this nest egg. You're not going to want to splurge on things when you're using your savings. This is like the time in your life where it makes probably the most sense or it is the easiest to spend and splurge. So I think to your point, it's, 
it, it does get to the point where I think you have to be honest about whether or not you're lying to yourself about the type of lifestyle you actually want to live and to make sure that you're not trading off too much just mm -hmm. to get work off your plate. It's like to, to what end though? What are you retiring to? Exactly. And it reminds me of uh, something you mentioned in an earlier episode about your parents and just like mm -hmm. how hard mm -hmm. it is to break that habit of saving once it's established mm -hmm. because you know, as those habits compound over time, it's not just, you know, the action itself. It belongs to a larger class of actions and you're training yourself to act in a certain way whenever you're coming to make a decision. And so if you don't occasionally flex that muscle of, you know what, this is what money's for, savings really are just deferred consumption. Mm -hmm. So deferred until when? That's what you were asking. Mm -hmm. Why not now? And, and essentially, I think it's uh, it also provides a route to a more sustainable path to financial mm -hmm. independence in the sense that you know it's trite but it's not a it's not a sprint it's a marathon mm -hmm. right and so people you know i myself when i was first starting out in my uh, career i found out the sweet you know gospel of mr money mustache and all that <laughs> good stuff and and really you know dove headlong into that material and it was super exciting um and it's still you know it's still i find it quite exciting to this day but like all things in my intellectual history, I kind of like dove in too hard at first and got extreme and was like, okay, this is what I believe now. And um, I think, you know, like everything in life, there's, there's nuance to it. There's balance that needs to be struck in order to, uh, in order to appreciate the fact that the, you know, shortest distance between you and your future might not be accumulating money as fast as mm. possible. You know, like that was the epiphany for me when I started out, I was like, I'm going to, you know, get a big pile of money and live off of the interest. And so it was, I want to be financially independent ASAP and happy eventually. Same. And then I realized that that was exactly backwards. Mm -hmm. You know, I should be happy ASAP and financially independent eventually. Oh, can we put that on a t-shirt? <laughs> sure. That's an amazing, did you come up with that on the spot? Have you been uh, holding sure on to that on one? The shoulders of giants. That yeah. was very beautiful. I think <laughs> you're you. absolutely right. I, it reminds me how I, I used to joke like, hey, I'm just front loading all the sacrifice. I, I don't care if the next five years are as miserable as I'll get out. As long as when I turn 30, I can go do whatever the hell I want. Right. Cool. Which, okay, maybe that's actually not that terrible of a right. deal if you're going to be miserable from 25 to 30, relatively speaking, and then go ball out for the next 80 years, whatever. <laughs> cool. That's actually probably not too bad. But I think in all reality, it usually takes a lot longer than five years that mm -hmm. you're front-loading sacrifice into. And um, I had a realization a few months ago as I was thinking, you know, through all of this, that there is something inherent in saying, I'm going to defer all of my happiness until later, mm -hmm. until a later point in time mm -hmm. that implies that the time that you have now is not as valuable as the time that you have later. Right. And to your point, it, it kind of is exactly the opposite. Yeah. Like now is the time to be prioritizing the happiness. And, and as long as you get that part right, well, great. Now you have a more sustainable path forward. Right. And I mean, it sounds woo woo, but like all we have is now, mm -hmm. right? Like tomorrow's not promised, but in a broader sense, no matter how long you've lived, like the only thing that you have to lose is the present moment. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not enjoying it now, then what are you doing? Mm. So you mentioned your career. So I want to pivot and ask 
about your time as a foreign exchange options trader mm -hmm. at Goldman Sachs and yeah. transitioning out of that. Maybe we can touch a little bit on what you're doing now. Yeah. But I would really love to know, Ben, would you consider yourself an ex-finance bro? <laughs> Do you own a Patagonia vest is what the people <laughs> oh want to know. Oh my gosh, Patagonia vest. <laughs> <Yeah>. Slowly unzips, <laughs> no, no. hides it I, under the table. I didn't bring it with me. <laughs> My wife actually bought me a Patagonia vest, and I was like, what am I going to do with this? You're my, like, my honey, freeze. I can't <laughs> wear this. Yeah, exactly. And then I realized it was the right tool for the job <laughs> on the whole trading floor. But no, it's uh, so ex-finance, bro. Um, I think in order to be ex-anything, you have to be it in the... In, for, in the first place? Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, I was always a bit of an odd duck when it came to the trading floor because I was the sort of... Elmer Fudd character <laughs> just like preparing for the apocalypse or whatever you know I, I wasn't ever really into that big-time consumeristic mm -hmm. lifestyle um, so you know my eyes would kind of glaze over when people would talk about the latest you know restaurants they've been to or anything like that it's just kind of like I my I'm a dork my favorite you know thing to do on a weekend is to sit down with my wife and play like a strategy board mm. so it's like I never really took uh, a lot of advantage of the uh, you know the bells and whistles of NYC in a way that a lot of people do. I don't have anything against it. It's just a personal preference. I guess I was I was lucky to be born with uh, this sort of cheap to please gene. <laughs> See, I feel like I'm the opposite. I'm like champagne taste on, on craft beer budget, sure. where it's like the second. I mean, that was really my identity. I used to be super materialistic, super into. Like my consumption habits were like really abysmal, but, mm. but I think what I'm really interested to know about, um, about your time there is mm. what was it like to walk away mm. from a job like that? Because I think, you know, you obviously probably, I'm, I'm assuming mm -hmm. based on what you just told me about your consumption habits in New York city, <laughs> imagining you and your wife, like playing Scrabble on, <laughs> on Friday night, not at Nobu with the table, um, I imagine you probably set yourself up for success financially from that job. I know how much Goldman employees make typically, uh, historically. Um, so I would love to know transitioning out of that, you know, how long were you there and what was it like making that decision to be like, you know what, this isn't for me. Yeah, I think uh, I was there eight years and um, to your point, it's, it's uh, you know, part of, part of the so to speak, cross to bear was trying to convince myself I wasn't crazy because, mm. you know, they're good at this stuff, right? Like the pay gets better every year mm. and like mm -hmm. every single year you get into that sort of, um, sort of golden handcuffs type of situation where it's just like, oh, but why don't I stay one more year? You know, it's just like that one more year syndrome where it's piecewise rational. And then you could wind up when you're 45 going like, hmm what else have I done? You know? And so that was the kind of scary part for me. And I knew about myself that I didn't want to do it forever. Um, and so I had even, you know, gotten a best friend to, uh, I told him when I was in my twenties to, you know, grab me by the collar if I'm still doing it at 32 <laughs> and, and make me justify myself. Mm -hmm. At least I didn't want to foreclose anything because to be honest, it was a great place to work. You know, mm -hmm. you're surrounded by all kinds of really smart people. It's challenging. It's intellectually stimulating. And as you pointed out, you know, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today mm -hmm. if it weren't for that experience and that, frankly, backstop that came from being able to accumulate some wealth and uh, hang out my own shingle as an entrepreneur. Like, I'm not 
a wild caddish, you know, crazy risk taker by mm -hmm. nature. Now I'm an entrepreneur, so it's, it's a different story, <laughs> it's a different pursuit. But dispositionally, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't the type who was going to do that straight out of school and right. really just, uh, you know, fly by the seat of my pants type of thing. I needed to, uh, needed to have uh, at least a semblance of comfort for my family before I was going to do something truly risky. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about truly risky, yeah. one thing that you said to me when we first met that really stuck out to me was you had expressed that when you would look at your numbers, it, it kind of gave you this sentiment or this sense of like, okay, but what does all this mean? Like, I see all this data about my financial life. I have this number I'm shooting for. Maybe I've surpassed it or, you know, my spending is doing this and my saving is doing that. But, but what does this really mean for me? Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big gap uh, in you know, the way that uh, personal finance software has addressed things in the past, you know, because mm. I was that weirdo who was like waking myself up in the morning to five minutes of trolling through Mint. I have a blog myself. post about <laughs> this yes. habit and I call it my life-changing money morning routine. You yes. can go Google that. No, it was... That I mean, was, yes, uh, at the counter with the coffee, like <laughs> rubbing the crap out of your eye being yeah, like, oh, exactly. the restaurant's budget is oh, ancient. I didn't, I didn't wait to get out of bed. I was, like, <laughs> I was like the first thing I did. I'm trying to convince myself everything is going to be okay and it always left me high and dry because yeah. it's like and to be clear I still use mint I think it's good for a lot of things and and budgeting is super important uh, but for me it it just kind of left me wanting when it came to the what does it all mean that you were just asking mm -hmm. about and so eventually I, I read a book uh, called your money or your life by mm -hmm. Vicki Robin and Joe Dominguez it's one of the, yeah exactly one of the the you know back back from the 1900s it was you know it's, it's just uh, last it's century's <laughs> best personal finance hits exactly but it just I mean it really was a game changer for me yeah. in getting me to see that like listen the truly most precious scarce resource is not money it's time and by the way you know, personal finance was so complex and there were so many different things that you had to weld together mm. in order to come up with some kind of a what does it all mean that magically time actually does uh, convince you of that or it, it at least provides metrics that you can track if you're willing to, you know, kind of put on a different hat and think about things differently. So how do you think we solve this problem? Yeah, um, a shameless pitch. I, I, I think Chronify, my company, is uh, that's that's exactly what I'm trying to do is mm -hmm. is solve that problem. Um, I think that the the way that most people operate is that they're not going to sit there and build this giant spreadsheet for 50 hours and like you've done it. I know that's, like, that's, that's your stock. $40 on moneywithgay.com. <laughs> exactly. Hundreds of hours of work can be yours. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but that's what it really takes. Yeah, honestly, it did. Yeah. It becomes this for a lot of people, it becomes this unwieldy monster. That's mm -hmm. just like, Oh, okay. Well, what about college education? What about this? What oh about my gosh. That? And yeah. there's so many assumptions that, for people who are just rolling their own, it can be pretty scary, right? Like, because it's just like, oh shoot, if I did one thing wrong, then garbage in, garbage out, like there goes totally. the Totally. And so it's a, it's a daunting task, but, and it's made more daunting by the fact that, you know, what you're even targeting is so abstract. You know, a million dollars means something totally different to different mm -hmm. people. And so what does enough mean? Like, you know, going back to what we were talking about of how, of how did I leave? That's ultimately the root question, right? Is like, yes. how much is enough? And so step one for me was realizing like, okay, uh, well, step one, I guess was 
looking at things like I'm gonna I'm gonna live off of the interest of this big pile of money that I'm gonna go out and get. And Scrooge McDuck. Exactly. Just swan dive. Ex- exactly. Into my pile of Breaking Bad hundred dollar bills. <laughs> exactly. And and uh, the epiphany for me was realizing that like look even at a job that like didn't set my heart ablaze like I would get to you know a week and a half into a two week vacation and I'm like itching to get back to work you know like there's something whether it's a feature or a bug it just it's, it's a part of me like I like to do productive work me too and so realizing that learning that experientially about myself uh, kind of led me to start thinking a little bit more outside of the box like okay it's not about like not work non-working mm. Ben is not happy Ben you know like that's that's not the solution for me and so I was targeting the wrong thing and so then I started to think more creatively about hmm okay well it's not about getting that giant pile of money and then living off the interest it's about getting enough money to spit out you know investment returns that will complement what will come as a byproduct of doing what's ultimately fulfilling mm-hmm, mm-hmm. wow I- I love too the the how much is enough thing just as a tangent because every time I wrestle with this question I'm reminded and, and kind of it, it comes back in my face of like what do you think you're retiring to mm-hmm. how much is enough enough mm-hmm. to what enough right. to leave a job I don't like to go do one I do like yes. well that's a very different number than how much is enough to like melt into my couch for the rest of eternity and and never lift my hand except to change the Real Housewives episode like <laughs> so I love that you're you're kind of identifying this need to make sure you're actually even targeting the right thing. I'm the same way as you. Mm -hmm. I cannot go more than a couple days without doing something that I feel like is additive in some way. Um, And I I love that you described it as a feature or a bug because I I used to think of it as like, God, why can't I relax? Like, why can't... It's like, maybe that's just not who I am. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you're somebody that is... I mean, maybe maybe busybody is a kind of, you know, pejorative term for it, but... Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think the more I just embrace that and direct that attitude or that energy towards things that I really find alignment with, right. the better the results. Right. So I, I think the, the how much is enough question is, is really amazing. So I have two follow-up questions. Sure. We'll start with the Chronify one. How does Chronify solve this problem? Yeah, so... Uh, as I said, that you know, time was the key yeah. element, and so you know, it's in the name Kron. It's it's uh, you know from the from the Greek for time. So but basically, it's um, looking at your finances in terms of time is a. It's more intuitive because a year of your life is something's like oh okay, you can, like, I can feel that yeah. yeah that's valuable. Or if you phrase it in terms of like years until you retire or years that you can survive, you know, on what you've gotten. So. The, you know, how Chronify looks to do that is, you know, when I log in, the top left number is here's how many years I can be financially independent right now. That's like, you know, looping together your expenses, your net worth, the prospect of investment returns, stuff mm. like that, just gives you one number that then you can track dynamically over time. And it contains more information than just like, you know, I, I had a recent blog post on, you know, the ways that net worth is not an adequate mm, I loved that uh, one. measurement. Thank you. It's, uh, it, it doesn't, you know... Do the job that we want it to do. And likewise, knowing your expenses isn't going to be adequate either because what's your income like? What is your net worth like? Etc. Mm-hmm. But looking at it like this, you can find a way to marry the two and ultimately come up with a number that will respond as you know you need to roll the punches and your life changes and stuff like that. And so then you got that on top of the idea of for a lot of people they're after conventional retirement or a job change or something like that. You know, for me it was taking a pay cut to do something more fulfilling. Mm-hmm. For other people it could be something totally different. But 
what I'm trying to do is provide people like, listen, here's how close you are in time to that goal right now. Mm -hmm. And then dynamically track that over time as your expenses change, as your net worth changes, mm -hmm. as you know, whatever slings and arrows that life throws your way. It's just, it's a way to boil it all down to something that's simple. You know, it's, I kind of look at it like a, like a running race, you know, you can either be the, the running coach that's like telling people to, you know, focus on turnover, stay low, like do all this kind of technical stuff, mm -hmm. or you can have them run against somebody who's really fast. Mm -hmm. And then if there's one input, like catch that dude, then mm -hmm. it's a lot easier because you're like, oh, okay, here are the numbers mm -hmm. in my case that you need to track. It's simple, it's clean, and it gives you uh, the dynamic, here's how I'm doing and making progress on it. So the the main takeaway that I'm processing right now is this idea that what you're building, and are you coding it yourself? Uh, yeah, most of it's my work. That is really impressive. The main takeaway is that the, the, the element that is missing in most of these products that we're using, my, my own included, is, is a viable inclusion of time mm -hmm. and that translation. And then kind of, we know you've already mentioned that Time is your most precious resource. I think that's people are starting to kind of adopt that mindset slowly right. but surely in the personal finance world. Right. I still see way too much like hustle porn on Twitter, but it is what it is. It's not what it sounds like. But <laughs> it's really fast. <laughs> so you told me a really funny story when we met for coffee about your Hulu oh, subscription. Yeah. Uh -huh. And I would really love for you to tell our listeners what Hulu taught you. Yeah, it's uh, it took it took a few years actually for me to for me to extract this lesson, but uh, basically how it started, I was on vacation with my wife and we're like huge dorks, and so we love watching Survivor. And the only way for us to watch Survivor because it was off season or whatever was to get Hulu, and. I was, you know, I was in the kind of the phase one of personal yep. finance, uh, self-awareness, if you will. And so I was, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to pay as little money as I can in order to get this benefit because that's just prudence. You know, you, you don't pay more than you have to. What am I, an idiot? <laughs> Turns out, yes, but <laughs> we'll get there. So basically I was, you know, there were two options. I could pay eight bucks a month for the version of Hulu where you'd watch ads, you know, mid-roll and whatever you were watching, or I could pay 12 bucks a month and skip the ads. And I opted for saving the money. And now that I've had time to reflect on it, you know, it, it hit me like a truck a while later. It's re realistically what I was doing was <laughs> I was selling my time and at what rate? Well, you know, let's imagine... <laughs> $4 Per month. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, I was, it was per month of ads. And so realistically, let's assume for the sake of argument that we only watched one season of Survivor during that vacation. <laughs> then that was an hour of my time that, I sit there, uh, that I'm sitting there like watching the Sabra farmers singing to their crops about hummus or whatever it was. That it's just like I could have been enjoying the time with my wife. You know, I was working at a job that was very demanding and like that's where all my hair went. You know, insert picture of Ben here on the ball. Basically, the idea is like 
this was my one chance to relax and you know i'm at a job yeah the work. fact that this was on a vacation right. no less exactly from an investment banking job <laughs> you're like 12 dollars for ad free can't swing it yeah no exactly sorry it's, sweetie settle in it was just it was just you know it was the classic example of how, of how a heuristic or like a rule of thumb is not enough to uh to dictate all your decisions it's a great it's a great instinct to try and save money where you can but I hadn't yet woken up to the fact that like the whole point of money you know savings at all like all savings are is deferred consumption and so that's all that uh, you know the whole point of it is to be able to do something that's gonna make your life or somebody else you loves life better <laughs> and so if you're if I'm selling my time to my employer for you know plenty per hour and I'm selling my time to Hulu for four dollars an hour, then that sucks. Four dollars a month. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's make sure we drive that point home. Thanks, you were not watching ads for four dollars per hour. Oh man. Okay, so so deferred consumption. This is you know, this is something else that I wanted to get your take on because before we sat down to do this, mm -hmm. I was rereading some of your blog posts and you know the there was a section in one of them. Un unlike me, you have not devoted an entire post to shitting on homeownership, <laughs> multiple entire posts. You'll get there, I'm sure. Um, but, but I do sometimes question my own belief system about this topic because it is so antithetical to everything else that I've been told my entire life about owning a home and what it means to be successful and mm -hmm. what being an owner stands for. And even George W. Bush was mm -hmm. quoted saying, well, we're a nation of owners. Like, oh, I wonder what government <laughs> entities are profiting from my decision to right. follow this advice. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. But, <laughs> you know, in that blog post, you referred to purchasing a home as, well, it's prepaid consumption. Mm -hmm. I thought, huh, what an interesting way to think about that. So I would love for you to just expound on it and kind of elaborate for me and for the listeners what is meant by that yeah i think um you know the conventional wisdom that's been passed down is that well one you should buy as much house as you can because housing only ever goes up <laughs> and two that owning a home is a better financial decision than renting because if you're renting you're just pissing money away and the reality is it's a lot more like everything in life. It's a lot more nuanced than that. It totally depends on the area, what your goals are, what your time horizon is. It's a very uh, personal decision. And so having, you know, being sort of browbeaten into uh, assuming that owning a home is a step up from renting a home. You know, I even, I owned my home in, in New York. And then when I went to rent in Jersey City and now renting in Fort Collins, it's like, I felt like I was going backwards in life because mm -hmm. it's so pounded into mm -hmm. you time after time that you know only only dummies would rent. Nothing can be further than, from the truth. Like there, are, it's a different solution set for everybody. It depends if you want to get nitty gritty. It depends on cap rates and all this kind of real estate garbage that nobody uh, nobody needs to dig into. <laughs> but the reality is, sometimes renting is a better uh, a better solution, and for a lot of people, it frankly is. And, and how I get around to that, to your question is in terms of you know treating it as prepaid consumption generally speaking if you ignore you know the the actual home cost let's say you buy your home in cash you know your your monthly outlays for your house are going to be less than what they would be if you owned 
or if you if you rented an equivalent house. Mm -hmm. That's just the way that it works. But what are you, you know, here in Fort Collins, what does that mean? It's like, okay, you'd be paying $700,000 or whatever it is for a house. And then that $700,000 is not making you investment returns because that's the kind of big sleight of hand around this stuff, right? Is that housing is not strictly speaking investment, right? Like a lot of people have a debate over, is it investment? Is it consumption? You know, where does it fit on the scheme? Don't get me wrong. Housing can and often is, uh, can be and often is a, uh, a great investment of dollars, at least nominally speaking. But if you look at like the broad course of history, it really doesn't return that much more than inflation. And so unless you happen to have an inside track and know like, oh, this, this housing is good value and be in the right place in the right time and all that kind of stuff, if you do have at it, because that's a great, you know, investment skill to apply. Mm -hmm. But if it's just, you know, blindfold yourself and pick a house, <laughs> you can't count on that happening. You know, you could wind up in some kind of a steel town where houses are basically people pay you to take them because nobody lives there anymore because the employers went away or that type of thing. Like it's all, it's kind of like a, it's a bit of a survivorship bias game in some sense because you hear about all these people who are like, oh, I bought this house for $50,000 in 1960 and now look, it's worth 1.1. You know, it's like, it's A, obviously inflation is a big factor in that and B, it's like, yeah, you're not hearing about the people who bought their house for $100,000 and then the employers went away and so it's boarded up and they can't find, a, can't find someone to buy it from them. I've never thought about it as survivorship bias. Mm -hmm. That is wild. Mm -hmm. And it's funny too because you know, we just looked at two extremes. The, yeah. I bought it in for 50 grand in, in Menlo Park, and now look, all these people want to live in Menlo Park, and who could have guessed in 1960 that right. the Bay Area was going to explode like that right. in the way that it did because of tech. So to, to your point, the opposite end of the spectrum is like, oh, here in, you know, Detroit, Michigan, potentially, mm -hmm. all the, you know, there are people, are, employers are leaving. And so mm -hmm. these houses are not worth very much. They're right. very cheap. Mm -hmm. uh, tenant turnover is very high as well mm -hmm. in the apartments, which also makes it kind of an odd place to own rental properties, I've heard, because you have a lot of turnover. Right. But there's also that middle ground yeah. scenario where maybe you didn't make a killing on the house mm -hmm. and maybe it's not boarded up and someone's willing to buy it. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of middle America... Homes are still appreciating at two to three percent per year. I my own parents, they paid I think two hundred and twenty-five or two hundred and thirty thousand dollars. That was the purchase price for our house in northern Kentucky mm -hmm. in nineteen ninety-four. And they sold that home after refinancing it to redo the kitchen. I think they put sixty to eighty thousand dollars into that house. Mm -hmm. They obviously paid property taxes, they paid for homeowners insurance, they paid for the HVAC, they paid for the new roof. They sold that house for $350,000 25 years later. Mm -hmm. They did lose money on right. that house. Right. On paper, it would not appear so because buy for two twenty five, dollars sell for three fifty. dollars but they put more than $350,000 into just the unrecoverable okay. costs and the upkeep and the renovations along the way. Was it a bad decision? Absolutely not. It was a great home. We loved living there. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that I got to grow up there and they don't regret it. Right. But it, it's funny because those are also the stories that no one's telling. No right. one's talking about the house that they made $100,000 on. I'm using air quotes on made 100000 They clearly did not. If right. you look at the numbers, you know, right. realistically. But that's, at that point, it's like, well, you're, you know, it's a crapshoot. It can really go either mm -hmm. way. And it oftentimes does go either way. Well, right. And, you know, kind of merging topics here. When I was, uh, 
you know, when I was hemming and hawing about whether I was going to leave my job, you know, the alternative to bumping out and doing something completely different here in Colorado was what if I keep doing this job for a while? What if we buy a place in New Jersey where I'm going to be commuting for an hour a day? We'll, we'll leave the time stuff aside despite the fact that it is near and dear to my heart. But the idea of moving to a place in, you know, in New Jersey that would have been in a, a type of community that we would have wanted to live in, it would have been... Uh, twice as expensive as it is here in Colorado. So that's headline paying the, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for an equivalent house. And then on top of that, it would have been 35 grand a year in taxes mm. for that house. Now, granted, New Jersey has very high property taxes. Colorado's got very low. Uh, for that type of house here, you'd probably pay like six grand a year mm -hmm. in property taxes. But the reality is for somebody facing down that, Homeownership isn't free. It's, it's not like there's, you know, you're free of that obligation to throw money away. Someone who buys that house in New Jersey is paying three grand a month in rent to the government mm -hmm. on top of their mortgage. And so it's like homeownership is, you know, it, it's not free money. And <laughs> Katie's dancing here. I'm dabbing because <laughs> I just feel so validated. Oh man. And you know what? Homeowners, like I, I don't, I think for some people it really does make a lot of sense. And I think for me someday it will make a lot of sense. But what I want to take this back to and like yeah. where I'm really going with this is that questioning that, that uh, societally upheld belief system and taking the step back to look at something another way and to say, well, wait a second, do I, is this traditional path actually what makes sense for me? I think that's what brings so many people to FI right. and the FIRE movement to begin with because mm -hmm. it's that spirit of curiosity and questioning and maybe I can do this a different way. Maybe I don't have to work in a nine to five job at the same company for 40 years, retire when I'm 65 and sail off into the sunset. Right maybe there's a better way. And yeah. so I, I think that for somebody that's pursuing fire to be staunchly in the home ownership camp is kind of ironic because the whole spirit of that movement is like, let's question conventional beliefs mm -hmm. and see if there's a savvier way that we can do this. And to your point about the property taxes, that to me is always the biggest variable. Even even like if you can get a home for maybe under market value, that could probably tip it in, in maybe the favor of, of buying. But like somebody listening to this in New Jersey mm -hmm. and somebody listening to this in Colorado, mm -hmm. this is going to impact them very differently. The fact that the same <clears throat> house in two different states can either generate $6,000 of unrecoverable costs or $36,000, that's a variable that can swing so widely. It's like, how could there ever be a black and white answer about something where each state in this country has such vastly different rules and costs associated right. with it exactly i mean and that's the uncomfortable truth you know we were talking we started off the episode talking about you know what's wrong with personal finance it's the fact is you know like everything in life as i said it's it's nuanced but the fact that there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution is inherently uncomfortable like mm -hmm. that's just the way that our minds work it's mm -hmm. either black or it's white and if it's gray like don't talk to me mm -hmm. you know like that's the way that you know, for example i used to make fun of my dad because like he was just obsessed with Costco when I was when I was growing up, and now I am that dad who's obsessed with Costco. Why? Because they make choosing so easy. I trust yeah. them like they're. Um, this, this is not sponsored by Costco. <laughs> I just I just love them. Like it's just like I their curation is yeah. excellent, and that saves me from those thousand little decisions of mm -hmm. like, oh, is this really the right product for me? Um, and that's whole like analysis paralysis or paradox of choice type mm -hmm. of thing 
it's real and like there's a real human yearning for avoiding decisions mm -hmm. when you know when they're extraneous to what we would need to actually make or like when they're when they're I don't know over and above the baseline number of decisions that we need to make to survive and so it's uh, it's attractive to be sold this narrative of like oh this is the right solution always and always and forever like this is this is what you should do uh, the reality is it's just different for different people you know and you know I I'm not forswearing ever owning again like you I think there will come a time when it will make sense for me to own mm -hmm. um, you know situationally it made tons of sense for me to rent here despite the fact that housing's now not 20% in my face as I've been renting, but... You're like, no, but hold, <laughs> right. hold the stake into the ground exactly. as the earth shakes beneath you. It's, it's brutal, but I know that eventually, you know, like we, for that was again, a personal decision because yep. when we moved from New York to Colorado, it was like, okay, we're going from living in a two bedroom apartment to, you know, now a five bedroom house that, mm -hmm. you know, we've got three kids and stuff. And so it's like, this was going to be a different lifestyle. We needed to experiment with this lifestyle before we go and do that massive round trip cost of buying and selling the house, you know, cause mm -hmm. like that's, it's tens of thousands of dollars just for like, thank you for doing business with us. Like <laughs> the massive round oh, trip. It's, well, I mean, it's absurd if you're, if you're not holding for at least a decent amount of time, it's the oh, brokerage yeah. taxes, all that kind of stuff just eats you up. And so, um, so basically it was important for us, given our personal situation, mm -hmm. to vet the idea, vet, like see mm -hmm. if this lifestyle is what we thought it would be. Spoiler alert, it's awesome. It's way better than it was on paper. So we should have bought if we, if we had scratch free, but like, but it's, um, you know, doing those experiments, like coming up with your own solution is a very important part. It's uncomfortable, but it's what we owe to ourselves to actually figure out the right solution for us. Two things. When we're talking about the Colorado lifestyle, this is something that you and I joked about when we met, and I think that it perfectly fits into the making a test run at retirement or making sure that you know what you're retiring to. Yep. So for the audience, I think Ben and I both, when we moved from a city, you moving from Manhattan, which is obviously like the city, and, and me moving from Dallas, Texas, which is like a cute younger brother, but still <laughs> a city. Um, when we moved to Colorado, we kind of joked that we both had this idea, uh, you know, oh, our lives are going to change so much. We're going to be hiking every weekend. And <laughs> like, I like every vision of myself that I had in this state, I was like head to toe flannel with like <laughs> a walking stick and a Subaru Forester. Yep. It was like my whole identity was going to change because I was moving to this place where being outdoors is a really, it's like all you do here. Right. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about your experience with that and, and you know, what what it made you realize when you came here and it was like, oh, well, I'm still me. Or like, yeah. you know, wherever you go, there you are. It, yeah. No, I mean, it's it's important to, uh, oh, there's there's so much that I want to go on there. Uh, so I'll try to hit one thing at a time. But, like, <laughs> but uh, you know, as for the Colorado lifestyle, you know, that was how we sorted, that was how we decided, like, I'm going to be starting my own business so I can be wherever I want. Mm -hmm. You know, let's start with just scientifically, mm -hmm. as I do everything because I'm a nerd, like, why don't I try and figure out where are the best places to live? And so uh, the first sorting criterion was, like, proximity to natural beauty, things to do mm -hmm. outside, things like that. Then we went down the ladder of, like, okay, where are the best public schools in those areas? And then what can we get for value in housing and all that kind of stuff? But first on the list was like, okay, where would be a great place to live? And 
the uh, you know based on things to do outside. And so I feel like a bit of a fraud because I've done like two hikes since <laughs> I moved to Colorado two years ago. Now, granted, you know we had a baby. There's been wildfires. There's been COVID. All this kind of stuff. But I'm adjusting to the idea that yes, do I like hiking? Yeah, absolutely, I do. But even though the right average number of hikes per year for my life might be 15, maybe that means it's two now and 30 later because mm -hmm. life changes. Like I'm, I'm getting more used to the idea that again, you know, treating things in a balanced way, it doesn't just because your average week looks like something doesn't mean that, okay, we'll divide by seven and that's your average day. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> it's not like you have to smooth everything out across your entire life and, and go, okay, well, I'm going to read for 43 and a half <laughs> minutes today because that's the right ratio. It's, it's, you know, it's a moving target and I'm getting used to the idea that there are seasons to life and right now might be just a not so much hiking season. Hike twice a year season. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and I, I, this, the reason that I bring this up is because the other day I was thinking about this idea where typically sometimes when I talk to people that are outside of this little personal finance bubble about, oh, well, I'm going to save a million dollars by the time I'm 30 and then I'm going to piece out of like life as we know it and catch me at 2 p.m. drinking wine and watching <laughs> Bravo forever, which we both know would not be how that would go. But... <laughs> The, the common response that I hear is like, oh, well, I would be so bored without mm -hmm. work. I'd be so bored without my job. And the, the, that particular response, I actually wrote a blog post about it recently, which I do not think will be out by the time this airs. But my, my 60 second synopsis on this is like, there's such a difference for me when someone says, well, I love my job. I wouldn't want to not do it. That is a very different energy than like, I'd be bored without that. Right. It's like, if, if your blocker is you're afraid of being bored, that just means you haven't spent the time to figure out what you actually enjoy doing, yes. what you want to spend your time doing. And in that way, I think the job, the traditional nine to five, it can be kind of a security blanket because it almost insulates you from like needing to figure out who you actually are and what you actually enjoy because you have this built-in excuse of like, well, I'm working, like I don't have time to go for it. It's, you know, all that said, I think there is a, a really important piece of the puzzle that we often don't talk about when we're talking about financial independence and, and educating about it in, in as writers or as, you know, podcasters, whatever as uh, the founder of a company that's trying to make this more accessible to people, it's you have to know how you want to spend that time. Yes. Like you have to, and you, you can't wait until you're walking away and putting in the two weeks notice. Be like, so who am I? Yeah. What do I like to do on a Monday at 2 PM? Yes. Like I, when it, I don't have to be on someone else's time. Right. And it, uh, in my mind, it brings me back to the, a concept that I really like that uh, I, you know, drawing from Mr. Money Mustache again, because a lot of stuff. Daddy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, so um, it's the weekend test, you know, that's, yes. that's the way he refers to it. And so, you know, people imagine that, oh, it's going to be so great. It's going to be sunshine and puppy dogs and all this kind of stuff once I retire, because I won't have this job type of thing holding me back. But the reality is a great test is, well, what do you do with your weekend? Because really all that financial independence is is expanding your weekend from two days to seven days mm -hmm. and so if you're not making good use of your weekend then how do you know like mm -hmm. what empirical evidence do you have that financial independence is going to be happy for you right and it's another reason by the way 
to be willing to, you know, have date night with your spouse, mm -hmm. like do that type of thing, indulge now, because that's a way that you I mean chalk it up to doing research. Like yeah. that's a way to empirically verify for yourself. These things do make me happy and practice for that mm -hmm. lifestyle along the way. So it's not just like, well, like, okay, well I'm retired. Let's go do date night. And then it's like, Oh, this isn't as good as I thought it would be. Oh my God. Tell me about it. That is, I, I was listening to something the other day where someone was like basically telling this story about some client they had that effectively did just that like rushed to retirement but she she kind of related it back to almost this idea of like creating a garden mm -hmm. if your whole garden is work and then one day you're gonna wake up and rip out everything that you planted and throw it away you're just left with dirt yes. unless you have taken the time and this is why i really like this metaphor you have to plant the other seeds uh -huh. and if you think that retirement, I always say like, I'm going to learn how to play chess really well. Like I'm actually going to learn how to play the game and not just like move the pieces around. You, Katie. Yes, me, Katie. Nice. And say, you know, well, what is the, like, I don't want to be asking what the horse does ever yeah. again. And that's, that's how I play chess. I'm like, does this one move this way? Like, I want to like hire a coach or like go get ice skating lessons. Just yeah. these like stupid things that I've always had interest in, but have always found an excuse. And I had told myself up until very recently, like, it's okay, I will do those things when I'm no longer working after I turn 30 and reach retirement and get my AARP card. But but the, the funny realization came when I was like, to your point, if you wait until you rip the bandaid off to try any of that and it's not what you thought it was going to be or like, oh shit, I actually don't care about chess or like, oh, I suck at figure skating and I don't wanna do this and it's not fun you're going to equate that bad experience with like, well, early retirement sucks. Yes. And it's like, you no, know, you just have to make sure you're doing that experimentation, right. that empirical validation before you've like launched off the side of the earth mm -hmm. and you're now going to suddenly question everything that you're doing and be like, oh my God, should I have left the job? Like, right. was this the right thing to do? Right. There's just these steps that I feel like are so pivotal that we rarely discuss. And I love the, uh, the garden framework that you brought up because yeah, it's important to plant the seeds but equally important is to then cultivate yes. them as you're going through mm -hmm. because people change. Like when you're setting out a career path, it, in some sense, it's insane to like pick a career when you're 22, your frontal lobe's mm -hmm. not even done developing. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. You or the major at 18. That's the other thing that blows my mind. Yeah, like at exactly. 18 years old, I was like <clears throat> drunk at a concert. Like I had no idea what I wanted to in do jail, with my life. Yeah, last, true. <laughs> from last episode. Okay. It was the back of the cop car. Okay, I got taken to the hospital. I never got taken to jail. Everybody. <laughs> So, and, but the so, point stands. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Please continue. No, I mean, people grow, people develop. Like, mm -hmm. would you have thought that you were going to be, you know, a personal finance magnate? Like, this is, <laughs> this is not. I like that word. <laughs> yeah. Aspirational. No, Aspirational. It's, it's uh, it, people's tastes change, you know? Mm -hmm. And so if you go, oh, well, okay, I'm 18 and I know that I love strategy board games. And you assume like, okay, when I'm 60, it's strategy board games. <laughs> All day, baby. <laughs> exactly. And but if you don't cultivate, if you don't continue to, okay, do I still like this? Do I still like this? Do I still mm -hmm. like this all the way down through mm -hmm. your life? Then you're setting yourself up for potential disappointment, you know. And by the way, 
you might not always be in as good a shape to do those things that you're wanting to do down the line either. You know, if, mm. if you're figure skating, good luck if you're 75. Totally. Um, you know, you're not going to be in that spot. But, but breaking a hip. No, that's a that's actually a really interesting point too that I, I think kind of shocked my system when I realized it was like, you can put all these things off and tell yourself you're going to defer all your happiness and joy to a later date. But like, you may still be alive, but there's no guarantee that you're going to be healthy, able-bodied and... Right interested in doing those things later. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The other thing that I was thinking about when you mentioned paradox of choice, and I'm glad that I didn't forget because I thought I was going to, we just went down a winding road, but <laughs> with the paradox of choice, I think initially that was what was kind of the light bulb moment for me with turning off the consumerist mm-hmm. hamster wheel that I was running on was holy shit, my life is so much easier when I'm not having to constantly be making these purchasing decisions. And I think I didn't realize how much emotional and mental bandwidth it takes up to try to keep up with the Joneses and to make sure that you have the latest and greatest and that you look a certain way until I I think it was a Mrs. Frugal Woods interview with uh, uh, the Choose FI guys mm-hmm. really early on some interviews she did where it was almost like somebody was giving me permission to be like, oh, I actually don't need any of that. I don't have to wear the best clothes or have the nicest Louis Vuitton bag or drive the nicest car. I mean, it was just an interesting sense of liberation yeah. that I got. And I think that's really what it comes down to is I had an abundance of choice and an abundance of decisions to make at all times, costly ones often. And that for me was a big light bulb moment where my spending habits totally changed because I feel like I saw the light and was like, Oh, I don't, you know, there is this simpler path that I can follow where there is a clear outcome that I'm striving for. And by the way, it makes my day to day so much easier because it eliminates a lot of that, noise yeah overhead um no absolutely i mean it's not just the acquisition where the tax is drawn right it's the maintenance it's the mm -hmm. storage it's the oh shoot you know i can't sell this because i bought it for a hundred dollars and i've only worn it twice you know Mm -hmm. that type of thing uh you know when you own things to a certain extent they own you you know like particularly uh a particularly uneventful stretch for work you know i'm whatever i'm Optimizer. And so mm-hmm. recently I did this experiment with myself where I literally itemized everything that I own. And so like mm. it wound up being, you know, and uh, I didn't expand to the family because then I would have been, you know, plastic pizza slices for the kids <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. But like just for Barbie this, number 76. <laughs> oh my gosh, you wouldn't even imagine. But it's, you know, for myself at least, there wound up being 500 items that we own because of me. And, you know, there were things like, okay, I've got four computer mouses. I've got, you know, all this kind of this stuff. This is so fascinating. But, I would love to do, like, my OCD is, like, salivating right now. Yeah, yeah, and, like, well, you have a list of like everything you, you own? No, I mean, and so it's, it's uh, it was a useful exercise because, mm-hmm. one, you know, again, getting back to our, our balance discussion earlier... Yeah, what did I do? I tried to cut out as many as many things. That, okay, four computer mouses, realistically, don't need those. Ditch two of them. I've got a backup. We're fine. Mm-hmm. Things like that. And, you know, there are a lot of clothing items. It's like, okay, uh, realistically, I've got ten sweaters. I'm only ever going to wear my favorite two. Mm-hmm. Like Capsule just, wardrobe, baby. What's exa- up? There exactly, it is. Exactly. Exactly. Ben's a capsule boy. <laughs> <laughs> Aspiring capsule boy, yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So so this, this exercise, yeah, step one, let's cut the fat. But step two, I so again, super dork, 
I rated the things that I own on certain dimensions of like, here's how often I use it. Here's, mm. the la here's how long it's been since the last time I used it. Here is, you know, how satisfied I am with mm -hmm. it, how necessary it is, that type of thing. So yes, did this take way too much time? Yeah, it would, but it's, you know, for me, this is again, I get itchy. I want to do yeah. something. And so what I realized was there are some things that I use every day. Ben, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I couldn't. I can't stop laughing because uh -oh. you just. <laughs> I'm gonna have to cut this out. I'm, I'm dying because you you just you just told me that. You... <laughs> Katie, do you need something? I swear I did not indulge in Colorado's finest before this interview. But you, you said that you, you're you like, I'm only going to wear these two sweaters. And then you said, I get itchy. <laughs> well, okay, fine. And I'm like, oh my god, I'm just imagining you wearing these two sweaters. Like, physically it's, it's itching yourself. Not... Like, must optimize. Like, it's because you you're wearing the same sweater. Okay, wow. That was such an unworthy tangent. Thank but I, I seriously could not. Thank you for that. Oh, wow. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> so, back to back to the real world here. Where I was trying to Katie hits joint. <laughs> so, but, like, basically, it was, it was the second step for me. Yeah, that yeah. was, like, so impactful. was, like, there are these things that I use every single day. Totally. That are, like, a three out of five in satisfaction and they cost like $30 to upgrade and so it was just like so fast. why on earth would I be slightly dissatisfied with something I'm doing every single day when you know the, the epiphany for me was like headphones for example mm. I'd always whenever I walked into Costco I would like look at the Bose headphones like oh I want some of that active noise yeah. cancellation action <laughs> like give me some of that and then I was like, no, I can't do it. 300 bucks. Like, are you kidding me? That's no, that, that, that doesn't fit. And so I realized that, you know, a neighbor tipped me off to a pair of headphones that were kind of an up and coming brand, awesome quality, at least for my purposes. And I wound up spending $70 to upgrade my headphones from like a three to a five. And as somebody who consumes a lot of audio content that significantly improved my quality of life for $70. And so it's just like, there are some of those layups where it's just like, if you actually take stock, then you can not only cut out the fat, but you can identify the things where it's just like, here's the best bang for my buck. I should get a new desk chair. We were talking about that earlier. Hello, Herman Miller Aaron chair. Yes. <laughs> my butt my butt lives in luxury now. <laughs> Congratulations to your butt. Oh, thank you. But so this is fascinating to me. And now I'm like taking notes under the table of like Christmas Eve activity, take inventory of everything I own. First question on, on a stupid tactical level, are you counting like, oh, I have that rug and we have this couch? Like, are you counting furniture or are these more like conventional belongings? I, I restricted it to the things that we own, that we wouldn't own if it weren't for me. Love and it. So okay. I, because again, it would just, I would blow a gasket, like probably have an aneurysm or something if I, if I tried <laughs> to do the whole exercise for the family. So yeah. So the, the thing that I'm, I'm coming back to is like, this is what it means to live an examined life. Right. And to think just a little bit harder about some of these decisions, mm -hmm. I think there's an interesting overlap that I notice. And I'm, I don't know if I'm just 
like confirmation bias because we're sitting here together and I'm like, I identify with a lot of the things that you're expressing and like also consider myself an optimizer. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we're both interested in personal finance, there is a weird overlap I find between like the life hack community and the Mm -hmm. FI or like personal finance community. Mm -hmm. But all that to say, I think uh, there's an amazing example of that exact instance where uh this woman rachel rogers her book is called we should all be millionaires Mm -hmm. and she gives an example of somebody in this book who you know moderately successful woman like making good money and every morning she goes to open this one cabinet in her kitchen that like hits the wall when she opens it Mm -hmm. but she gets something out of that cabinet every single day and and they were using examples like that to identify like where are there points of friction in your life where it's absolutely ridiculous that they exist you have the money fix the fucking cabinet make it open the other way take that 10 seconds of frustration that you're experiencing that's compounding every single day and just fix it Right. And I mean, that's, uh, you know, you're pointing out something that's kind of a double-edged sword because I think you're right. There's a strong correlation between like life optimizers and like financial independence pursuers. And you can optimize to, there's no end. Oh, absolutely. And that's, that's the way that I'm wired. And if I weren't already wired like that, Wall Street would have wired me for that additionally because it's like, okay, well, if there's a penny in this account, can it be earning better interest? You know, mm. like it, it's just like it's like a crime against yourself to mm-hmm. not be earning the best rate of return. Mm-hmm. And I started opening my mind up to the more psychological side of things. Uh, you know, what is money actually valuable for? If it's it's for providing happiness ultimately. And so it sounds you know soft and amorphous, but the reality is sometimes the best use for money isn't the one that generates the best you know cash on cash return. I'll give you an example from my own life. You know, when I was on the fence, you know, thinking, should I stay, should I go, et cetera, mm-hmm. with my job, I was trying to get my head around that, um, that problem. And so I had always kind of been a responsible, you know, keep six months emergency fund type mm-hmm. of guy. And then I realized, you know, the last year at the office before I quit was actually one of the happiest years at the office. And mm-hmm. I think a large part of that was because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't fully invested. I was kind of mm. one foot in, one foot out. And so instead of keeping my six months, you know, emergency reserve, I was keeping more like two or three years type of thing because I was planning on like, okay, if I do this, then I want to do something entrepreneurial. And so I can't like make myself beholden to this next year's bonus or whatever. I need to Two accept. to three years in cash. I mean, and it wow. sounds yeah. wild, especially because it was earning, you know, what, like 40 basis points or mm-hmm. something like that. It was probably a little higher at that point. But like, it was, you know, conventional wisdom says that should have gone to the market. That should have done this. That should have mm-hmm. done that. But what is the money there for, right? The money's there to make me happy. And so... If I can walk into the office with an extra spring in my step because nobody owns me and I can walk yep. out tomorrow if yep. I want to, Ooh. I just have so much more ownership in my day. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's, I mean, for me, I realized like it's not about this financial return all mm-hmm. the time. It's about being able to use your money for your ultimate peace of mind. And if you can't use it for that, then what's it for? There's, a, there's another personal finance uh, friend that I have. I I lump all of you into this category of like my personal finance friends (laughs) who think deeply about, yeah. So his, his name on Instagram and Twitter is budget dog, Mm -hmm. but his like real name is Brennan. And funny enough, Brennan and I went to the sister brother high school 
like across the street from each other in northern Kentucky. And I think we both like knew of each other in the space, like didn't put two and two together that it was the same person. Yeah. Anyway, Brennan worked at Deloitte in, Uh in Cincinnati and he, he and I see it very differently on like the cost of home equity and how like having a lot of equity in your home is actually very expensive because to your point, it's, it's not in the market doing what it should be in my mind, doing what it should be is earning as much money as possible. Right. And, Brennan uh, paid off his home and they did it in like five years. So they own their home in Northern Kentucky outright. And I really like his, uh, his kind of example and the way that he uses this story because the reason they wanted to own the home outright was because he wanted to leave Deloitte and, and do his own thing full time. And he knew that as long as they had a mortgage payment and you know their expenses were 100% higher than they are without the mortgage payment, yep. he was gonna feel some level of reserve about quitting because it's like, oh, but I still have to make this payment for the next 15, 20 years, whatever. Yep. So for him, and what I've, I've loved about that story is despite the fact that I think owning your home outright is quite expensive from an opportunity cost standpoint, <clears throat> for him it provided the ability to go be his own boss and spend time with his baby daughter who yeah. was born this year. And I'm like that to your point, what's money for? That's exactly what it's for. Right. That decision ha- netted the very best outcome for him because the best outcome for him was not having a slightly bigger nest egg in 40 years. Right. It was being able to leave that job. And so I love his example, especially because it's, or, you know, around a topic that I expressly like have disagreements about the math of how all of that plays out. Right. But I think it really paints that point beautifully of like, you have to define the target. You right. have to decide what's the goal. Exactly. I mean, it sounds like he and I would be good friends because mm-hmm. like, I also felt like classically speaking, I felt like a moron for putting money towards my mortgage, which was at 3.375%. Mm-hmm. When it's like, what's this going to do in the market? You can't predict it, but it's probably going to be better than 3.375%. Mm-hmm. But for me, whatever, the way that I'm wired, having debt is just like I feel encumbered. Not only are the monthlies from a cash flow basis like more daunting, but also it's just like being able to tick off that box, like in Brennan's case, being able to just own the home outright. Then you've just got one less thing to worry about Mm -hmm. each month. And that, especially when it comes to debt, everybody's wired differently, but I'm a bit of a curmudgeon. I like to to not have all of that... uh, not have complication where there doesn't need to be complication. The, the Dave Ramsey <laughs> boner. <laughs> no debt. Oh my goodness. Um, ben, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much. I feel like we're pushing an hour. So I'm looking nervously over at my like ancient MacBook Air being like, please don't <laughs> explode into smithereens before I can make sure this recording is locked in and we're good. But I really appreciate you and your perspective. And I'm just candidly very impressed with your take on all of this. So thank you for sharing it with my community. Yeah. And um, Well, thank you, Katie, because I mean, the, the feeling goes both ways. I'm an I'm a avid consumer of your content <laughs> and I really like, you know, I wasn't blowing smoke. Like, I really like your angle on things because mm, I do think you. you in particular hit that sweet spot between happiness and money in a way that a lot of people just kind of haven't quite gotten to yet. Mm. And so I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm just glad to be here and I'm grateful that you had me on. And by the way, for uh, people who are uh, listening to this um 
you know, Katie's, I, I love what Katie's up to basically. And so I'd love to extend the offer to um, come on for an extended free trial of Chronify. If you go. Uh, Chronify.com slash Katie. Uh, you can get an extra, extra 30 days. So a total of 60 days free trial. Amazing. I will put that in the show notes, everybody. So you can very easily and quickly navigate over to that URL. I think what you're doing is really, really cool. And I think you're filling a space that, that is to your point and kind of, I think to the point of this entire conversation, very nuanced and very necessary. So I thank you. And I thank you for your kind words. They were sponsored by money with Katie at moneywithkatie.com. He is being fairly compensated to say such kind things about my content. All right, y'all, we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to this very wonderful conversation with Ben Miller, the founder of Chronify. We'll see you next time.